morning. Mike is coming. Mike is on. I have to tell you, I'm really looking forward to a potluck after service. And I, I do, I hope and I pray that you would just stay a little bit. If, if you don't have time, I know it's, your time's precious, but we would love to hang out with you. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to get to know you. This is an awesome time to grow in our community together. And then there's always plenty of food. So please hang and stay with us as we potluck. Um, a couple more things I just want to touch on. Mark and Celeste Yoakum, these are two missionaries that we support as a fellowship. You've met them. They were here with us for Christmas time. Many of you know that Celeste had been battling some, some pretty aggressive breast cancer. And they've been doing some different forms of treatment, and we've been praying for her. Well, as of her most recent doctor's appointment, she is called disease-free as of right now. So it really is a huge praise. Amen. So keep praying, and, and with that, keep letting us know what is going on with you. We, we want to encourage you. We have prayer cards, connection cards. Um, we just want to know how we can come alongside you in prayer, whatever's going on. It may not be as, as big as cancer, but if it's big to you, it's big to God, and we want to pray for it. So there's no small prayer request. So, so just know that as well. Um, there probably was one more thing I was supposed to say, but I don't remember what it is. So open your Bibles. Exodus chapter 4 is where we're going to be. I have a few Bibles up here. If you showed up and you just don't have one, we'd love for you to follow along with us. Exodus chapter 4, there's some verses in here that you're going to need to see for yourself because I'm not making this stuff up. We, got, we have kind of a little bit of a challenging section of Scripture before us today. God bless you all. I have, I have one more, and, and we always have Bibles back here on our resource table that blue, Mr. Blue Bin over there, Big Blue, we call it. And help yourself. If you do not own a Bible, please take that one. It's yours. We'd love to give you that Bible as a gift from the Lord. So join with me as we pray and get into our text this morning. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And Father, I just pray that you'd settle our hearts, God. I, I pray that you'd, you'd settle us in this place and, and really give us ears to hear what your Spirit wants to speak to this, your church. And Father, as I've been wrestling through this text all week, and I've been kind of feeling like it's, it's hard, and it's challenging, and it's flat, God, the bottom line is it's your word. It's your word that is able to break the rocks in pieces, God. It is your word that is a fire. It's your word that is sharp, and it's living, and it's active. God, it's your word. So we don't need to pray for your word to be anything more than it already is. We just pray that you give us ears to hear it. Give us hearts that are willing to understand it. Give us a posture, an attitude that wants to do what we have just heard, what we're about to hear. So Father, come, send your Holy Spirit, anoint us with your presence, anoint my lips to preach your word in a way that is faithful, honorable, accurate, and true. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, I don't know about all of you, but I, I have been amazed at our study thus far through the book of Exodus. I've loved going through this book. I've loved studying it. I love all that God has been teaching me and revealing to my heart about himself. It's, it's really been amazing. I'm learning so much. And I hope that's true of you, but I want to tell you, kind of the first five weeks of our study, through the first three and a half weeks of the book of Exodus, it's kind of been like you're walking through an orchard, and you're just picking what's called low-lying fruit, and just enjoying it right then and there. And what I mean by that is you can just read the text that we've been covering through the first three and a half chapters, and it's so good. You're like, I, I don't need to read a commentary about this. I don't need some pastor to tell me anything about it. It's all good just the way it is. But I want to tell you that it's starting to change a little bit this morning. It kind of gets like broccoli 
instead of low-lying fruit. And broccoli, like, you need a ladder to climb up the tree and get. Like, really, who's willing to grab a ladder to climb up a tree for some broccoli, right? You're like, no. Maybe somebody is. You don't have to raise your hand. Somebody probably is. But that's kind of, it's still God's word. It's still good. We're still going to learn a lot about the Lord and a lot about who he's called us to be. It's still beautiful, but it's just challenging. We're going to see some tensions. We're going to see some tricky situations. In fact, we're going we're gonna to see what I'm calling. We've got three tricky situations this morning. Three tricky, one pretty sticky, and one kind of icky situation in the text before us this morning. And as I try to encourage you to always do, read ahead. You know where we're going to be. We are a church that teaches verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So you know where we're going to be, right where we left off the last week. And so I want to encourage you, keep reading ahead. Read the narrative of the book of Exodus. Have some familiarity with what we're talking about and where we're going so when we come on Sunday mornings, we can take it a little deeper. But some of you have been doing that, and I say, well done, good job. But you also know what's ahead of us today. Some difficult text, but we're going to work through it, and we're going to see the beauty in it, and we're going to see this beautiful theme that it's really about a father, a son, and an act of redemption. In three different contexts, we're going to see that. Between Moses and his father-in-law, or a father-in-law and a son-in-law, and then between God the Father and Israel the Son, and then between Moses as a father and his own son, and in each one of those things, it's all about God's work of redemption. So kind of keep that thread in your mind. Now as we get back to the text this morning, what I want to do just quickly is I want us to be reminded of Moses' attitude as we pick it back up. There's no separation in the narrative between verses 17 and 18 where we left off last week and where we're picking up this week. So we need to know how Moses ends the conversation with God, that Q&A that he had with God in the burning bush. That's still how his attitude is this morning. And remember how is or this morning in the text where we pick it up. But remember... He, he, he asks the question, the last question he kind of asks the Lord is he says, Lord, what if I don't want to go? What if I really just want you to send someone else? Remember he says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Put your hand on someone else. I just don't want to do this. And remember the anger of the Lord is kindled and it's just, it's not good. It's a situation where you're thinking, well, that, that's not how we want to respond to the Lord. And, and we talked about that last week, but I want you to know that's how it ends. God is eventually going to say, Moses, I'm going to send Aaron. Aaron will be your mouthpiece. But we don't have in the text Moses saying, okay, God, yes, I'll do it. I'll do it for your glory. I'll do it in the strength and the, in the supply of your spirit. It's going to be great. I can't wait, God. I'm, I'm so zealous to do your will. We just do not have that in the text. We have Moses still with this kind of ho-hum attitude, this attitude of reluctance, not brimming with confidence as he leaves the situation. Now, he is going to go, he is going to be obedient, but now it's like reluctant obedience. It's kind of like when your kid sulks off to clean their room. They know they ought to, but it's not like they're celebrating going to clean their room. It's kind of like that. He's, he's just going, I'm going to do it. But I want us to re-engage with that attitude. That's how Moses is at as we pick back up in the text. So verse 18 says, So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go, return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons 
and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. So check out what the first word in verse 18 says. It says, so. And what it means is consequently connected to what God has just called and commissioned Moses to do in the burning bush encounter. It says, so he's going to go to Egypt. So he went. He's moving in the right direction. But I want you to see that Moses knows what he needs to do first. Before he goes to Egypt, the first thing he needs to do is he needs to approach his father-in-law, Jethro, and he needs to ask for permission from him. Now that is a sign of respect to do that. Jethro is the patriarch of this family, and it's just the right thing to do. Jethro is the one who's taken Moses in. Jethro is the one who gave Moses a wife, a life, a job after he fled Egypt from taking matters into his own hands with nothing. So it's just the right thing to do. So he goes and he approaches Jethro. And Jethro's going to say, go in peace. He's going to give him permission. But here's where it gets a little tricky. Does anyone else find it strange that Moses presents this simple little request to Jethro and not tell him everything else that has happened? He shows up to Jethro and he doesn't say anything about the burning bush encounter. He doesn't say anything about the God of Israel has visited me. He doesn't tell him anything about how God knew my name and then he told me his name and then there's the whole rod and the snake and the leprosy. I mean, there's a bunch of things that I'm thinking, Moses, why didn't you tell your father-in-law about that? Why not tell him about that? And a lot of people want to hammer Moses over omitting to share that information with Jethro. And when you look at it, his request is simply, he says, I want to go and see whether my brethren are still alive. And we're thinking, well, Moses, what are you doing here, right? If you're talking about your brethren, the Jewish people, you know they're still alive because God told you they're still alive because God told you they were praying and he heard their prayers and is sending you to deliver them. What do you mean you want to see if they're still alive? If he's talking about Aaron, his own brother, wondering if he's still alive, God has told him that part too. Aaron, while he is speaking with Jethro, is on his way to go meet Moses. So I'm thinking, who are you talking about? What are you concerned? What? Some people want to hammer Moses and say, he's lying here. Why would he lie about this? If you're not going to share the complete information, that's a lie. But I want, I want to take a step back for a minute. I want us to take it easy on Moses. I don't want to hammer Moses. Why? Because God doesn't hammer Moses here. I want us to be careful that when we see things like this in the text and we want to pounce on it and commentators want to pounce on it, we say, wait a minute, what does God do? We're going to see later in the text this morning, God has no problem letting Moses know when he's not right with God. But this isn't one of them. So there's got to be something else going on here. Now, the only reason I can come up with, and I want to encourage you, I'll do this multiple times throughout the text today because it's tricky text. There's multiple ways to take what what we're reading and interpret it and apply it. But this is my take on what we're seeing here. The only reason I can come up with is Moses is not going to share everything with Jethro at this moment. Because he's really trying to do just one step at a time. Moses is really trying not to get ahead of the Lord this time like he did last time. Moses is really trying to say, God, I know you said what you're able to do. And I want to believe it, right? He's, he's still in this place of reluctance saying, help my unbelief, but he's trying to trust the Lord. He's trying to do the right thing. For me, as I studied this out this week, I couldn't help but notice the similarities between the statement Moses makes in Exodus chapter 2 and the statement that is made here in Exodus chapter 4. Two statements that show the same desire in Moses' heart. 
and two statements that are bookend by 40 years. But chapter 2, verse 11, this is what is said of Moses. It says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and, notice, looked at their burdens. And then he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now we know, because we just studied a few weeks ago, after he does this, everything falls apart in his life, doesn't it? This is the moment right before he train wrecks his own life by taking matters into his own hands. He looked, he saw, he acted in his own strength, in his own flesh, in a way that seemed right to him, and everything went downhill from that point forward. And so I want you to consider what is really coming to this collision point in Moses' life in Exodus chapter 4. God has told him, I want you to go back to Egypt. God has told him, I want you to go back and see your brethren. If we shake it all down, what God is really saying is, Moses, I'm giving you another chance to do what you should have done right the first time. And I just want you to consider this. For 40 years, if there was ever a moment in Moses' life where he looked back and said, what if I would have handled that situation different? This is the situation he thought about. If there was ever a time when Moses thought, if only if I would have done this situation differently, this is the situation he would have thought about, right? We don't know that he did that. I'm saying, if he did, this would have been it. And now all of a sudden, it's been presented to him because you know who God is? You know who our God is? He's the God of the right now and the next time. Right? God is the God of us walking with him right now and then every second and third and fourth and fifth chances that in his glorious grace he gives us to walk in things rightly again. And I don't know about you, but I have not always gotten things right in my life. And I know that some of you can agree, right? Which means when I get another opportunity to do something that I knew I didn't do it right the first time. You know how I handle that? With fear and trembling, walking circumspectly, knowing that I'm going to carefully take every step, making sure first that it is right in line with the Lord, my God, who I'm following. So think about how that shakes all of Moses' reluctance and now says, I think it's kind of beautiful. I think it's kind of right. He's not going to get ahead of himself. He's not going to put pressure on himself by telling Jethro all that God has said. Why? Because that's God's business. If God's going to do it, God's going to do it. If we sum it all down, what's the one thing he asked Moses to do? Really? Show up. Just show back up in Egypt and let me be me and I'll use you. If we take it and we just bring it down, that's the beauty of what he's saying. Just show up. Just show up, Christian. Show up into the situation. Fill with the Holy Spirit. Open your mouth. Let him provide the words. Let him provide the supernatural. Let him do what he wants to do. So it flips everything. And I say, I don't, I'm not going to hammer Moses about this. I think these situations are, are very similar. And I, I, I say it brings up because verse 18 here in, in Exodus 4, when it says, let me go see whether my brethren are still alive, the same word here for looked is the same word for see. It's the same exact situation. He's going right back in there to see what God is going to do. So again, I'm not going to hammer him here. And I don't think we should. I think he's keeping things simple because he wants to stay on track. So he gets permission from Jethro to go. Jethro is going to say, go in peace. Now, a couple small tidbits that are going to be important later. He loads his family up. 
He's going to Egypt. He's going to put his wife Zephora on a donkey notice with their two sons. Sons, plural. We were only told that he had one son earlier, but we know later he has two sons. Sons, plural, at this time. And then notice, my favorite part about that, what does he have in his hand? It's called the rod of God. Right? Because he knows when I go out to Egypt this time, he didn't have the rod before. God wasn't with him before. But God is with him now. And I picture him just clinging to that rod of God as we cling to the word of God as he's heading back into the situation that God has called him to go. So tricky situation one moved on. Let's go to 21. Verse 21 says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go that he, so that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn son. So here's tricky situation number two. Now we're going to talk about some of the specifics in these verses, but I want us just to make sure we're not missing the overall theme of what God is telling Moses here in this moment. As he's going to Egypt in verse 21, on his way now, God says, make sure you show Pharaoh these wonders. Right there, earlier, the wonders, the signs as they're called, they're the signs to the people, they're the wonders to Pharaoh. But Moses wasn't told initially that he was going to be showing them to Pharaoh. They were initially to show the elders of Israel so they would believe that he was sent by God. But now he says, yeah, you're also going to show those to Pharaoh. You're thinking, okay, I'm, okay, I'm going to wrap my mind around that. I'm going to show him the rod that when I throw it out, it turns into a snake. And then if I grab it by the tail, it turns back into a rod. The leprous hand, remember he puts the hand inside his robe, it pulls it out, it's leprous. He puts it back in, it's healed. And you pull a cup of water or a vessel of water outside the river Nile, dump it, it turns into blood on dry ground. Those are the signs. He says, you're going to show those to Pharaoh. And then he's going to say, but Pharaoh is still not going to let your people go. It's still not going to come immediately. And I think this is an important point to just to make sure we catch. If we try to find the overall theme, just the practical of what God just told Moses, what he told him is, Moses, now that you're on your way, now that you're obeying me, now that you've stepped out in faith, you know what I want you to know, Moses? It's not going to come easy. You're not going to be successful immediately. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some persistence. And I just think that is very, very important for God to tell Moses that beforehand. I think it's very important that God has told us that beforehand, right? All who desire to live a life of godliness will suffer persecution. If they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute us as his followers. No servant is greater than his master. He told us it's going to be hard. It's a narrow road. It's going to be difficult. So very similar It's going to be difficult. It's going to take 10 plagues that are going to be God's wonders, God's own hand stretched out. And what he refers to here about the firstborn, it's the 10th and final plague. So it's going to take all of those before Pharaoh is going to comply and let the people go. So he says, Moses, it's not going to happen easy. In in essence, for us, I, I I would say, he's saying, Moses, don't grow weary in doing good. Does anyone else need to hear that this morning? Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged. You, me, we have need of endurance. He's going to tell Moses, you just keep obeying me. You keep listening for my voice. You keep doing what I've told you to do in my word. And you'll be fine. 
God never promised it was going to be easy. But just like with Moses, as he clings to that rod of God in his hand, just like we have the promises through Christ, he will be with us. He promises his presence with us everywhere we go. And honestly, listen, I would rather have the promise of God's presence with me than the promise of success by myself. I hope you agree with that. I don't want to be successful in a single thing without the Lord. I'd rather suffer defeat with the Lord than experience success without him. I don't know how if you feel the same way, but you, you, you wrestle that out on your own, but that's what's going to go on. Now, why is, is it, why is it going to be so difficult to get Pharaoh to let God's people go? And it's going to be because he has a stubborn, hard, unyielding, unsurrendering heart towards the Lord. Now, we all want to know, Christians have wanted to know for centuries, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart towards the Lord or did God harden Pharaoh's heart towards the Lord? Right? We have two options. I'm going to give you the answer. We've got it solved here today. You want to know the answer? Yes. Yes. We solved it. Yes. Both. He did both. I want you to see this. We're going to look at this in the text for a minute. I want you to see here in verse 21. It says, God says, speaking beforehand, speaking prophetically to Moses, he hasn't even made it to Egypt yet. He hasn't even gone before Pharaoh. But he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He will not let my people go. I'm going to harden. God says, I'm going to do this. And he will. We're going to see it in the text. He will. But I want you to know this is not the first time in our Bibles that God has told us about Pharaoh. Last week, look over in your Bible to chapter 3, verse, verse 19. I put it up here if you don't have your Bibles with you, but this is what God says of Pharaoh in the Q&A with Moses the day before or the moment before when they were before the burning bush. He says, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. Now this verse here, this is God speaking beforehand. God is not saying I'm going to harden anything here. This is God just saying a statement of fact. I am sure, why? Because I know Pharaoh's heart. We human beings, we judge from the outside. God, perfect God, he judges the heart. He says, I know he's not going to let you go, not even by a mighty hand, because his heart is hard already. Right? It's already the circumstance that's going on. So you kind of see both. But I just, I really want you to do this. I want to encourage you to do this. Not only read your Bibles. I definitely want you to read your Bibles. I can't encourage you to do that more. But if you read your Bibles, as you read your Bibles, reading through the Exodus account specifically, I want you to see, I did this in my new King James Version Bible. I was able to circle seven different times where, where there are phrases like this, that it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Neither did any of these things move Pharaoh's heart. His heart was hard. Seven different times before it says, and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Seven times. Seven being the number of completion, divine perfection. Seven times God allows Pharaoh to make his own decision to harden his own heart. And then God is finally going to step in and say, all right, If you're going to harden your heart against me, you've made your decision. I'm going to use you for my glory. I'm just going to harden your heart, fulfilling the decision that you have already made seven times. And that is very true and biblical. God will not contend with man forever. But what we're talking about here that is difficult is we're talking about God's sovereignty. We're talking about God being absolutely in control over all things, answering to nobody, doing what he does in his perfect wisdom, both past, present, and future as the I am. And we're talking about man's 
responsibility. We're talking about predestination. We're talking about free will. This is that divine tension that we see in our Bibles. But I want you to know it's both true. I want you to see biblically that we don't cast off one for the other. We don't highlight one at the cost of the other. We say, hey, here they are. They're both biblical. They're both true. I want you to think about them as like divine tensions that pull against one another. There are two things that pull against each other, creating tensions. Tensions for us, not tensions for God, but tensions for us to be able to see and recognize God is greater than I am. God understands things that I don't. God's ways are higher than my ways. God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I don't get it. When you think about these divine tensions like God's sovereignty and human responsibility, I want you to know they are not supposed to be solved. They are not supposed to be rationalized away. They're supposed to be recognized and adored because God is awesome and we are his creation, finite in our abilities. He being infinite, we don't get everything about him. And that is absolutely fantastic. I don't want to come to God and say, I got you all figured out. I, I guess I know. You know who wants to convince us of that? The devil, right? You can be like God. I say, no, I can't. I will never be exactly like God. I am being conformed to the image of his son, but he will always be God, not me. So these are one of those beautiful moments that what they do is they should bring us to the humble point of saying, God, I adore you. You are awesome. I see your hand. I recognize what you're doing. I don't get it all. But in this situation, that's what we're seeing laid out. So seven times Pharaoh is going to choose for himself to harden his heart. And then it's going to say that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And then you're going to see one more time after that, an eighth time, God in his incredible grace, an eighth time Pharaoh's going to harden his own heart. And the number eight being the sign of new beginnings. God in his grace saying, Pharaoh, here's, here's another opportunity for a new beginning and he's going to reject that. And I want you to know, think about Pharaoh. He is there watching with a front row seat the wonders of God being poured out upon Egypt. He's got two witnesses, Aaron and Moses, showing up to him saying, that's the hand of God. That's the God of Israel. That's the great I am. That's the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? It's not like he's like, oh, I wonder if who this is. Right? He knows he's been given every opportunity. It should remind us of Jesus in the gospel accounts. When Jesus, the Lord God himself, God in the flesh, is doing miracles live and in person. And people would look at that and say, I don't believe we were just reading this this week about the resurrection. Jesus is resurrected. His body is still showing the scars of the crucifixion. And they're watching him. It says, and some chose not to believe. I'm like, what? How can you stand before the physical, actual, resurrected Lord Jesus and say, I don't think that he's really God. I'm like, what? That's crazy. But some people do that. Some people, because they want to keep their sin in the dark. Some people, because they think they can hide from the one who is all-knowing and all-seeing. They will do that. So it's the same kind of situation. We see it all throughout the text. So I, I don't want us to be afraid of verses like these. I want us to recognize them and say, God, you are God. So that's what we're seeing here. And I want you to know we're going to talk more about this in the, in the book of Exodus. We're going to see this multiple times. It's not over, but we have more things we need to talk about this morning. So we, were, we are going to move on now. But I want you to see what he says next in these same verses. He says in verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn son. 
These are God's terms. This is what God is bringing Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, right? The most powerful human ruler in the world at this time. Here's the terms. Let my people go or your son is going to die. Think about that. Think, just picture this from Pharaoh's perspective, right? The, the world ruler at this time. And you got two guys coming out of the desert. Two guys, I don't even know what Moses would look like right now. I wish we had some descriptions of what he would look like. But you got these two guys, they're going to come up and lay down terms like this. We're going to see next week in chapter 5, Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord. I don't know, who, really? There, there's a God of these people? I mean, these people have been treated with affliction for over 400 years. Really? Somebody cares about these people? Because he's like, I sure don't. I don't care if they die. I don't care what happens to them. But they're here to say, God does. In fact, as much as you love your firstborn son, Pharaoh, God loves these people. They are his son, he says. Powerful. We're, we're going to unwrap this more as we close our study out this morning. But I just want you to see that's the terms of the Lord. This is that beautiful picture we're beginning to see here. It's really about a father and a son and an act of redemption. God being the father. Israel here in this, in this context in, in Exodus being the son. And God saying, I want to redeem them. I want to call them out of bondage. I want to save them from something for something. So from bondage for what? Worship for sonship. God is really saying, I want to deliver these people out of bondage as strangers and aliens in your land because I want to bring them into my land where they will be where I'm going to set up my temple, my tabernacle, the place where I'm going to dwell. I will be their father. They will be my people. They will dwell with me as a family. That's what God is saying to Pharaoh. That's the terms of what he's laying out here. And I think it's absolutely beautiful, but that's what's going on. And again, hold on to some of those things. We're going to talk more about that as we close. But after telling Moses all of that, this is what you're going to say to Pharaoh. Here's my terms. This is what's going to happen. He's on his way to Egypt. Then probably the strangest thing of Moses' life happens. And, and we're talking about the guy who just stood before the burning bush, right? But this is probably stranger than even that. But look at this. Verse 24 It says, and it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zephorah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. All right, we've already worked through two tricky situations. Here's our third tricky slash icky situation. But I want you to see this. This thing comes out of the blue. I don't know about you. You're like, when I'm reading this, I remember reading this like early on, new Christian. I'm reading through the Bible and I get this and I'm like, what? What? What happened? Is there anyone like, what? What is going This is so out of the blue. This is so just what, right? I, I drew a face with an open mouth going, what? What is going on? That's kind of how I felt about it when I first read it. And as I was working through this, I still kind of feel that way in a little bit. But I, again, I want you to know, I throw the disclaimer out there. There are so many different interpretations of what we just read here. And the bottom line is this. We just aren't given as much information as we would like. I would love about 10 more verses about, about what we just read. But we just don't have it. So we're going to use what we have, and what I hope to do is leave these three verses with less questions than we started with. But there's a lot of these. Here's some of the questions. I tried to sum it up to five questions. These are the five main questions that I have about the text here. Number one, who is angry here? Number two, who is in danger here? Number three, who comes to the rescue here? Number four, what is done to alleviate the anger and save the life? 
And number five, what does a husband of blood really mean? So we're going to try and shake those out. And again, you have a different opinion on this. You be Bereans, you search your Bibles out, you do your own study, and let's talk about it. But here's, here's my take. Number one, who is angry here? Verse 24 says, Moses and his family are at an encampment. So they're staying somewhere. The trip to Egypt is a, is, is a multi-day trip and they're probably heading to the mountain of God. They're probably near the mountain of God at this point because they're about ready to meet Aaron at the mountain of God. So they're, they're heading there. Now, while they're at this lodging place, it says that the Lord, notice that all caps, the Lord, this is the proper name of God. We talked about it last week. Yahweh, I am. He is the one who is angry here. God is angry. Something has been done that is so offensive to God that it's worthy of death. It says he, the Lord, sought to kill him. Right? God is saying somebody's going to die here because the offense that has been committed is that severe. All right? So God is the one who's angry. Number two, question two, who is in danger here? Well, it seems to me that Moses is. And then after Moses is going to be the son who is, is uncircumcised in this situation. But Moses, the Lord is specifically angry at Moses and so angry he's going to kill him. Now we're left to speculate what specifically is going on here. We just don't have the information. I don't know if God is there in the presence of, of like the angel of the Lord before Joshua with the sword drawn, like the army of the commander of the Lord, and he's got it to Moses' throat. I mean, that's, that could be going on. I don't know if he's like Miriam and his just whole body is struck with, with leprosy and he's just completely white near death. I don't know if that's going to again, possibly. I don't know if he's being apprehended. As, I don't know. It seems to me that Moses is incapacitated for whatever is going on because he's nearly dead, right? It's that serious, right? So he, he's not able to do anything in this moment but try to not die. So Moses is in danger. Number three, question three, who comes to the rescue? We're told that Moses' wife, Zephora, she's going to see what's going on. She's going to know just what to do. And here's another example in the book of Exodus of a woman being used by God to save God's plan of redemption and deliver Moses from this situation. Zephora, Moses' wife, is going to do the right thing. She's going to deliver Moses. She's the one who saves her husband. If you're here as a woman and you, you have a, a not yet believing husband, how do you know, oh wife, whether you will save your husband? Zephora is going to save her husband's life here. She's going to be the one used by God to do this. So she acts quickly. She does what is required to alleviate the anger of the Lord. But we get the idea if she doesn't do what she does right when she does it, Moses dies. Consider that. God has just met with Moses. God has been raising Moses up. And Moses has been spared from the Nile River. Moses is is the deliverer, right? It's the Mosaic law. And it was all about to be nothing. Because the offense that has been committed is that serious to God that he's, he's willing to start over with someone else. Listen, there would still have been an exodus, but it would not have been Moses. There would still have been a law, but it would not be referred to as the Mosaic law. God would have raised someone else up to use it. But know that it's that serious. God is not a liar. When he says, I was going to kill him, he was going to kill him. And Zephora steps in to alleviate the anger of the Lord to rescue her husband. So question number four, what specifically is done to alleviate the anger of the Lord? Zephora has to circumcise her own son. Now apparently Moses never did this. 
Now again, we don't have the information. Moses has two sons. I made that clear earlier. Sons, plural. We know that he has a son named Gershom, and Gershom is his firstborn, and he named him Gershom, which means a stranger in a foreign land. But we don't know. We don't know if it was him. His second son is named Eleazar, which means God is my help. So I don't know. I mean, you could make a case for either one of those sons. I tend to kind of think maybe it was the firstborn, but total speculation. I do not know. Feel free to have your own opinion. But bottom line, one of these sons is not circumcised. Moses chooses not to do that. But I want you to understand the severity here. Moses has been called by God. Moses is called to be the representative of God. Moses is called by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has already told us, that is my name forever. You're called to go enact the promises of the covenant that I made to Abraham, including the land I'm going to bring my people to, I promised to Abraham, the blessing I'm going to have with my favor upon my people, I promised to Abraham, and the descendants, the very people that I promised Abraham to have. But Moses isn't even living within the very covenant that he is supposed to be a representative towards the people and deliver. Because Genesis 17 says, and I wanted to read some of these verses, but I commission you, a lot of reading I'm commissioning, a lot of homework. You, some of you have the day off tomorrow. You got some reading to do. But I put the verses in your study guide. Genesis 17 verses 1 through 14 lays out the covenant of circumcision. It lays out the covenant promise that God gives to a man named Abram. Right? He's not even Abraham yet until this covenant is renewed and the sign of which being the sign of circumcision. So God renews the promises. God renews what he says he would do for his people, the very promise that we see being fulfilled in the book of Exodus, the sending of Moses. But God gives just one sign. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And then he gives one sign, one sign to do, one thing to do in faith and in obedience to show that we want to be your people. We want you to be our God. And it's the sign of circumcision. You have a problem with that? You need to take it up with God, right? That's his word. That's what he says, a cutting away of the foreskin. That's what I want my people to do. Again, this is in a Jewish context. It doesn't pertain to us now today in a new covenant relationship, but in this context, it very much applies. This is what you need to do. And he goes on to say, any male that is not circumcised is to be cut off from my people for he has broken the covenant. He should be done. They are supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. We get the idea Moses was raised by godly parents. He was probably circumcised on the eighth day. He does one of his sons, but not the other. Why? We don't know. We're left to say it's, it's an act of obedience. But it breaks the very covenant. So when it says he's going to kill him, God would have killed him and been absolutely justified in doing so. He broke the covenant. Moses knew. Moses disobeyed. It's going to be God's grace that he doesn't. He gives a window for someone to do something to alleviate his anger. But I want you to very much catch that. The wages of sin is death. Moses has disobeyed the Lord. He's broken the covenant of the Lord. He didn't lead his family in the way that he was supposed to lead them. And now they're subject to the judgment. But God is going to permit, allow this moment for Zephorah to do what she's supposed to do. But just understand the severity of this. Very practically, Moses is called to go lead the people of Israel after the Lord as an under-shepherd of the Lord, and he's not even leading his own family. He's not even willing to keep the commands of God in his own household. And listen, I know that that's hard for, for us as fathers. That's hard for me as a father. 
And yes, there's going to come a time where our kids are outside of the household and they're going to make up their own decisions. God has no grandchildren, and I love that, right? He only has sons and daughters, direct people with relationship with him, right? They can't have their faith with God vicariously through us. So we can do what we can do and we can raise them up, but they still have to choose for themselves. But this is not talking about that. This was a decision Moses was supposed to make when that child was eight days old. And he chose not to do it. It kind of, again, that's why I kind of think it's, it's Gershom, his firstborn, because he says, I was a stranger in a foreign land. He thinks it's over. I've already broken the covenant. What's the point? Again, purely speculation. You work that out on your own. But that's where we find ourselves. And I know that that's heavy, but that's, that's what God is showing. It's so important. If you're going to lead my people, you've got to lead your own house. If you're going to represent me, I must be seen as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified, he's going to say. It, it just has to happen. And I want that if there's a spirit of conviction falling upon you in your life for some error, something that you're allowing, again, listen, that's not between me and you. That's not between you and another person. That's between you and the Lord. And let that spirit of conviction draw you to repentance. Say, God, I don't want to tolerate this thing in my life anymore. I want to circumcise it. I want to cut the flesh away. I want to be led by the spirit. That's what is going on here. Let God be God. Let God be Lord of your life. When he brings a spirit of conviction upon me, you know what I say? Father, don't ever take your spirit of conviction from me. Now again, I don't think he will, but I'm meaning. I want to be corrected by you, God. I want to be chastened by you, God. I am your son, and the fact that you're convicting me shows my legitimacy as your child. What is this whole thing about? It's about a father and a son and an act of redemption. And for you ladies, I want you to know that pertains to you too. This son that we're talking, we are sons and daughters. We're heirs in the beloved. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female in Christ. We're talking about a sonship. It speaks of the inheritance we receive, right? You get to be a son in this context. I have to be a bride in another context, right? But it's all speaking about the same truth. But let the Spirit of God be the Spirit of God and do what He does as He, sh- as he sanctifies us and He purifies us and he, he refines us and wipes away the dross that comes to the surface in our lives. That's what's going on here with Moses. But Zephora is going to come to his aid. Zephora is going to cast away this situation and take care of it. Now I want you to see specifically what Zephora does. She circumcises her own son to alleviate God's wrath. But I want you to see this part. It says... In my Bible, in in the New King James Bible, it says that, verse 25, that she cast the foreskin at Moses' feet. And some of you kind of picture like a major league pitcher or like a softball, you know, like like she's like going to hurl it at his feet. And listen, that's not what happens here, right? She is not in anger throwing the piece of flesh at Moses' feet. All right, please don't think about it like that. It literally means she takes it and she daubs it. She touches it to his feet. What we're talking about, it's so, 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 so very important. The same word that is used for casts it or daubs it is the same exact word and the same exact shadow that is being used in the Passover when the children of Israel are called to sacrifice a spotless, unblemished lamb and take that blood and daub it, cast it, touch it on the doorpost and lentils of their house so the plague of the firstborn passes over them so their houses are covered by blood and protected from God's wrath. It's the same exact picture. Picture, she's going to touch his feet with it. 
and it's going to alleviate God's wrath, God's anger at the sin and disobedience because he has determined that when there is the shedding of blood, that is what is necessary for the remission of sins. So God allows it, accepts it, tolerates it, and it saves Moses' life. But I want you to catch the picture in its fullness. Moses is as good as dead, right? He's near death. He's incapacitated. You could say he is a slave to sin. You could say he is without God. He is without hope. And yet God is going to allow someone else to act on his behalf, someone else to do a sacrifice of blood that is going to satisfy the wrath his disobedience incurred. Are you tracking with me? That's what's going on here. Now take that same idea and say, then what does it mean when she says, question five, what is a bridegroom of blood? What does it mean? If she's not angry and she's not hurling, and I want you to understand that she's looking at this saying, you are a bridegroom of blood. It's with an exclamation point of surprise and amazement. You are as good as dead. I did this thing and God received it as a propitiation, a substitutionary sacrifice to spare your life. You are a bloody bridegroom is another way to say it. You've been washed by blood and God has saved you. You've been protected by the blood and now God has let you go, set you free. The chains have been broken and now this whole situation is over. So this bridegroom of blood, do not think that it's a derogatory statement. Do not think that she's angry and she's mad and she really didn't want the circumcision. Again, I've heard that taught. I've read about that. That is not what's going on here. She is amazed that God is able to save and redeem through his blood and has just set free your husband. Their bond is closer than ever. It's a covenant of blood now. So note all that. Keep all that. It's amazing to me when you see all this. But let's, let's move on. We've got a few more texts to cover. We'll read through this quickly and we'll wrap up with some application to our own lives. But verse 27 says, And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So Moses is going to meet with Aaron. Aaron has already heard from the Lord to go out and meet with Moses. They're going to meet on the mountain of God. And this has to be just an exciting emotional occurrence for them. But we we don't have a ton of details about it, but we see Moses is going to tell Aaron, show Aaron everything. This is what God has done. He's going to hold nothing back with Aaron, right? Aaron's going to be his spokesman. So unlike Jethro, he's like, here's everything that happened. And then he's going to show him the signs. And then they're going to gather, go back to Egypt, and they're going to gather the elders of Israel together. And I want you to see this, you people who kind of struggle with the speculative unknown that we talked about last week, right? You kind of worry about a situation and you play it out in your mind when it might not ever go that way. Remember, that's what Moses was doing about the elders of Israel. Are they going to receive me? What if they don't receive me? What if they don't believe me? Look at what it said. They show up and it says in verse 31, so the people believed. And they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction and they bowed their heads in worship. They believe him. They receive him. 
And they're amazed that God has seen their affliction, answered their prayers, sent Moses. They're ready. Now we're going to see some conflicting things in that, but they're, they're worshiping in this moment and they're going to start obeying what God is going to show them. But as we start to close this out and get ready for our potluck here, I want, I want to look at one more thing as we, as we kind of wrap our minds around this big picture. This book, as this theme has kind of been laid out, again, it's about a father and a son and an act of redemption. And I come back, when we talk about the book of Exodus specifically, that's what God is going to do. He's seeking to redeem the nation of Israel as his son for himself. He's going to save them from something for something, from bondage, out of slavery to sonship. And he's going to do it out of love. God's setting up a rescue plan so they can all dwell together in the land that God has promised as a family. But God is going to say this. This is later, but it's speaking back to what happens here in the book of Exodus. Hosea 11 verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. A beautiful verse and a beautiful prophecy kind of looking back at what God has done and looking forward, we'll talk about it in a minute. But that's just the relationship that they share. God is going to say, you are my son. I'm going to be your father. I'm going to lead you out of bondage. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to dust you off. I'm going to lead you out of bondage. And God is the father. He's going to teach them. He's going to give them his law. He's going to walk with them and dwell with them and show them how they're to serve him and him alone as their God, not the things of this world, not to be complicating all those different things and, and, and putting themselves in positions of compromise with the world. He says, no, I'm your father. And so he says right here in verse 23, Exodus 4, he says, let my son go so that he may serve me. Again, worship me, follow me. I'm calling you out of this world into a relationship with me as your God and father. So again, a father and a sonship. But we know how the story goes, don't we? We're going to see it in the book of Exodus, but we see it throughout the Old Testament. Israel as a son, as a nation, as a people, they're supposed to be a city on a hill. They're supposed to be a light for all the nations. They're supposed to be a people set apart for God's holy use. They're supposed to be a people that dwell in a place that is the only place on the planet where God has set up his temple and says, I will dwell here where people can come and see and know that the Lord God of Israel, he is the true Lord God of all, the one true God over all heaven and all creation. But what happens? They are a disobedient son. Right? We see them, they're, they're a disobedient son. They break God's laws. They break God's commandments. They turn to false gods. They turn and prostitute themselves out to the other gods of the other nations, which are not gods at all. Right? And listen, so have we. When you think about us, we're no different. We don't look at the Jewish people and say, oh, they failed, but we would have done different. We would not have done any different. We do the same thing. We are not the son or the daughters that we want to be. We're not the obedient son. We're not, we're not what Israel was supposed to be, and we couldn't have done any better. But it was God setting up what he was really going to do. There was going to be another firstborn son. There was going to be another son who was going to walk in absolute perfection. There was going to be another son who was never going to break one of his father's commandments. There was going to be another son who was never going to break his father's heart. There was going to be another son that could do what we couldn't do, what Israel couldn't do, and his name is Jesus. And we see this picture being built right here in Exodus. Exodus is just a small part of this story, but the Bible as a whole is this story. A father, a son, and an act of redemption. Matthew connects these dots for us using Hosea 11 verse 1. Matthew, a New Testament writer, he says, When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. King Herod is trying to kill him. 
So they go to Egypt for a time. But it says, and when, and, and what, okay, was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. The New Testament writer, Matthew, connects it, saying, Hosea was speaking back to Israel, calling their son. But Matthew says, but he was also speaking of Jesus, who also came out of Egypt. The perfect son. The son who was perfectly obedient. So as we take this situation and we look at it for ourselves and kind of apply it, Jesus is our example. Jesus is who we look to for everything. Jesus is the one who fulfilled everything we long to fulfill. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our propitiation. Listen to this. Jesus is our bridegroom of blood. Jesus is the one who died on our behalf, does what was necessary in order to save us from the imminent death. The wages of sin is death, and we are all guilty. We are all as good as dead apart from Jesus in God's eyes. But Jesus came, the perfect son, fulfilling everything that we couldn't, laid his life down for us, rose again from the grave, and whoever would put their faith and trust upon in him, we are washed by what? His righteous blood. His perfect blood. And I want us just to remember that and apply. This is the beauty of the Bible that we hold in our hands. So many different books, so many different human authors, but one spirit-inspired thread through it all that points to this message. What God the Father was willing to do, what he could do only by sending his son, a perfect act of redemption for all of us. If you've yet to put your faith in Jesus and experience what it means to be forgiven, accepted, redeemed. That's what he offers even still today. That is why he came. That is the the offer of salvation that he reaches out to you right now. Take his hand and say, yes, Lord, I believe that you died and you rose again. Forgive me of my sin. Remember, Moses could do nothing to save his situation, completely incapacitated. So are we. Our faith, our hope, our, our salvation is not based upon what we did or what we didn't do, but wholly entirely upon what Jesus has done. And so it's a finished work. Rejoice over that as you see the thread. I love seeing the threads of this great truth in scriptures like what we just read. And it's everywhere. So we'll look at it more. But continue to read ahead. I want to invite John and, and Giselle up to kind of close us out with a couple songs of worship. I want to encourage you in a couple things. If you, if you want prayer this morning, you know, myself, Dave Coaches, March, we want to be up here available. We'd love to pray for you. If you want to pray, if you want to, to share what's going on, we don't even need to know. We just want to come forward, we'll pray for you. If you want to uh, share something that's going on, we'd love to listen. But I, I want you just to engage with this. When the text kind of gets heavy like this, it's an opportunity to act upon it. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Don't let today move without that. And if, if you're not comfortable with that, hang out for the potluck. And when we are in the potluck, be real. I want want each of you to ask one question to someone else. You ready for it? How's your heart? Ask just one person today, how's your heart? And then listen and and be honest and share It's this, it's that, whatever's going on. But let's be real. Let's be the body. Let's engage with one another. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And God, we're amazed by what what you see, by what you know, by what you do. We're amazed by your faithfulness and how how in your grace you allow us to respond to you. God, how in your grace you allow us to, God, you allow us to even flounder sometimes. But God, not outside of your sight to to come to a place where we say, God, I don't want to flounder anymore. I need your help. And so I pray, if nothing else, that this would be a moment where we'd all come to that place where we say, God, I need your help. I'm not okay this morning. 
And I need your grace. I need a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. I need your forgiveness. I need to be reminded who you are. And Holy Spirit, I'm always vastly incapable from doing a work that only you can do. And that's by your design. So I just pray, Holy Spirit, fall upon your people. Minister to the secret things. Minister courage in the areas where where we need to say, I just need help. I need prayer. Minister to the areas where we say, I need fellowship. I want to connect. And Father, for those of us who just feel like, wow, God, you've got us in such a place of victory. I I pray that you would allow us to be the body to those who maybe don't feel so victorious this morning. Spirit of glory, spirit of grace, spirit of Jesus, come and rest upon this place and rest upon our hearts and minister to us as we sing a few worship songs and open up an opportunity to pray. We lift it up in Jesus' name. Amen.